guest on Hardly Working Today is Richard Baldwin, author of The Globotics Upheaval, Globalization, Robotics, and the Future of Work, and The Great Convergence, Information Technology, and the New Globalization. Dr. Baldwin is also Professor of International Economics at the Graduate Institute in Geneva, Switzerland, and Founder and Editor-in-Chief of Vox EU, the public policy portal of the Center for Economic and Policy Research. And he also served in the George H.W. Bush administration on the Council of Economic Advisors. Richard, welcome to the American Enterprise Institute, and thanks for joining us on Hardly Working. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. So the book we're focusing on today, The Globotics Upheaval, isn't a long one. It's actually very accessible, easy to read, but it's pretty packed with ideas and insights. And I'd like to see if we can break this conversation down into kind of three main buckets of issues, and then we'll just kind of see where those rabbit trails lead us. But the first is sort of clarifying and establishing the definitions that you use in your book and your outline of the history of these economic transformations that we've seen over many decades. Second bucket is I'd like us to look at your theories in the context of some very recent research coming out of Finland on the impact of technology on service sector employment, since that's a major theme of your book. And then third, I'd like to get you to unpack some of your thinking about the interface between human beings and technology and what you see as the risks and the opportunities. So with that as kind of an introduction, let's go straight into this first sort of area of inquiry. Let's start with historical and definitional issues. What is globotics? Where does it fit in this story of economic transformation? in the West and now globally, and why do you think it represents an upheaval? Right. Let me just react quickly to the thing you said about the book. My publisher said I should write a book that takes five hours to read, but makes you think about it for five weeks. And that was well, the goal. Well, it's certainly done for yeah. that for me. Thanks. And there's a lot of material on the cutting room floor yeah. to get it that way. But thank you very much for those comments. So what is globotics? Globotics is an ugly but hopefully memorable word that smashes globalization and robotics into a single word. And the reason I invented that word is because I found a great deal of frustration with the debate about the future of work, where people are saying, was it the robots or was it globalization? And what my point now is it's both at the same time. Digital technology is allowing automation of white-collar jobs, and it's allowing offshoring or, or importing of white-collar services from abroad at the same time. And a lot of the problems with this discussion is people are thinking that the next wave is going to look like the last one, which hit factories. And there you could actually ask, was it China or was it robots? But going forward in the service sector, it's not that. Now, in terms of fitting it into the history, I view this as the beginning of a third great economic transformation. So the first one, which was sparked by mechanization, was from the farm to the factory. And the second one, which I take as sparked by computerization, starting from around 1973, was from the factory to the office. And this one, which I date to 2016, because that's the, the year a number of prominent magazines called the year of AI, I think that's from service jobs to sheltered service jobs. And what I mean by sheltered service jobs are jobs that are sheltered from automation that's coming from software robots and sheltered from automation that's coming from online foreign service providers. I would like to argue that we're really in a new phase, a new world. It's not just the old one continuing on. So tell us about the upheaval part. Why a term like upheaval? Where does the upheaval come? So what I'm worried about is if we are at the high end of the speed and size, 
which I don't know. And I think it's very, very hard to predict because of tipping points and all that sort of stuff. I think that it's possible that the white collar and professional workers will join hands with the blue collar workers who got hurt in the last two decades and create a huge upheaval, something like the yellow vest joined together, I don't know, with the battle for Seattle. So, you know, it could go very fast. Very interesting. So, if I understand from your book and from my other reading, you know, the, the history of development, economic development in the West has always been about creative destruction. You, new automation comes online, it reconfigures industries, it destroys some interest, industries, but it creates new ones, it creates new jobs, it unleashes increases in productivity that drive income and wealth, and somehow that all turns into more jobs. I get the sense from your book that you think this time is different. Yes. Is that true? And if it is, why is it true? Right. So let's put it this way. I think it's a long run, short run sort of thing. I'm an optimist. I think we are traveling in the right direction. Let's put it this way. I think we have to move to this kind of a, we're all working in the service sector kind of world if we're going to keep up the rising standards of living. So I think it's inevitable. But the problem is the mismatch of the speed of job creation and job destruction. So the way I like to say it is in a great American miracle, 5 million jobs are created every month. In a great American tragedy, 5 million jobs are destroyed every month. There's an enormous turning. So what really happens is whether the job destruction happens faster than the job creation, asserting the job creation will eventually happen. And what I like to point out in the book is that job destruction is the business model of the AI geniuses. What they are doing is gathering large data sets on existing service jobs to, for example, replace 10 or 20% of all the check-in people in Hilton hotels. So that's how you become a billionaire in the next few years. Now, I'm fully convinced that this AI will create millions of middle-class jobs. The way I like to think about it is, a nurse with an AI that's really good at diagnosis is half a doctor, and the same with a, the road engineer. So I can see AI being used by average people to create jobs that are between, say, lawyer and paralegal, or an engineer and a road chief, or an architect and a draftsman, or anywhere in between where the average person gets wisdom that used to be reserved to people who had 20 years experience. Now it's on an app. That, though, will take time. We'll have to change the way things are reimbursed. We'll have to change certification, change attitudes. So that's not happening immediately. But ultimately, most of this AI is making average people smarter. What's really different than the technology, the information and communication technology that we had, say, from the 70s and especially from the 90s, is that you don't need a university degree to use this stuff. In fact, all of us are using AI without even knowing it. You go on Twitter and you go translate from Turkish and They'd even tell us that option, but all of a sudden I can translate from Turkish just by touching it. So that's not a complicated thing. And so I'm hopeful that this is how it will come. But in the short run, job destructions being driven by the AI geniuses and digital technology at that pace, job creation is being driven by human ingenuity and entrepreneurship, which is taking its usual leisurely time to do it. So it's the mismatch of speed that bothers me, not the direction of travel. In this literature, in this debate, a lot of people say, are you an optimist on jobs or are you pessimist? And then I say both, which of course everybody hates. But it's, I think one needs to be pessimistic in the short run because the job destruction is driven by a different process than the job creation. But I'm an optimist in the long run because I've seen over the centuries 
we get all the jobs we need. That's entrepreneurship and ingenuity. We'll create all the jobs we know. We just don't know what they are yet. From your book and from just my own observation, it seems like different countries are managing this challenge differently. The US, the UK, you know, we saw Brexit, we saw the election of President Trump, a lot of resistance and a lot of sort of a populist groundswell around this. You point out in your book that that's not necessarily true of every country, even in the West. I'd like you to unpack that a little bit and talk to us about what are the different experiences that are happening across developed economies and what accounts for the differences in responses. Right. So let me start out by simply differentiating between anti-immigration and anti-globalization sentiments in populism. So all around Europe, and many, many parts of Europe, there's an anti-immigration backlash, largely associated with this millions that came from Syria in 2015. You know, you remember the people walking across the land and stuff like that. That upset people from Finland to Greece to everywhere that they, they actually came. And there was a bit of anti-EU that got wrapped into it because the EU has a process for reallocating these people, which some of the countries, especially in the East, said, we don't want them. Once you separate anti-migration and anti-globalization, you'll see that in Europe, there's actually very little anti-globalization. And Brexit's the perfect example. The conservative party is, we want to control our immigration, but we want more free trade. Once you differentiate that, it doesn't look as scary. To answer more directly your question about the different reactions, fundamentally changes require people to change jobs. And in some sense, there's some sort of social contract of who's going to pay those costs. And in some countries, that's shared, and there is ways of sharing it. The government will help you find a new job or unemployment insurance or whatever they need to do. In others, there's just a general assumption that the worker will pay the cost of the adjustment. That is a huge difference. And it's not all government policy. So you go to Northern Europe, they have all these active labor market policies helping people change houses or retrain or whatever. But if you go to Japan, where there's almost no anti-globalization, Obviously, they've been anti-immigration forever, but that's nothing new. And it's not a populist thing. It's just the way they are. But the way they deal with it is people feel they're part of a society where the gains and the pains will be shared. And so workers themselves don't feel it's only falling on them and they're left behind. Although there are people like that. But the way their corporations are done, their, their families are run, the way that the cities organize things, many, many Japanese feel, okay, well, we've had a hard time. But we're sharing the pains and the gains, so you haven't seen the backlash against globalization. I'd like you to take it just a step further and think about kind of, in your book, you talked about the difference between sort of the continental reaction and the UK reaction to these phenomena in both immigration and the globalization. And then also looking at the US, you know, the US response to it. And I'm particularly interested in what we might be able to learn out of that continental experience about how to manage globalization so that it doesn't provoke an even greater backlash, if you're correct, and if we're moving into the service offshoring. Right. Well, so let me just point out that a lot of this had a ge very strong geographic, a regional dimension to it, especially when it hit manufacturing. So they in Brexit, people talked about left behind regions. They were maybe left behind by the transportation network, by the declining industry, which the government didn't try to help out with. And then they often got trapped with the fact that their houses were no longer worth much. And if they wanted to move somewhere where there's a job, they couldn't afford the housing. Mm -hmm. So there was stuff like that. And I think similar things are going on in the United States. If I was going to give you like one quip that is enlightening to me is protect workers, not jobs. 
That is, the government should have governments, labor unions, social societies, NGOs, people should help people adjust to the changes that are coming no matter what. And that it shouldn't just be on their individual shoulders or that of their families, because it's really a change that's helping society. It's affecting all society. It's almost like an insurance policy. Nobody knows who's going to get it, so we all take out an insurance, a social insurance, and do it that way. If you look at the elements of the active labor market policy, basically people need time to change jobs, and sometimes they need to change skills. But I would point out that with this changes coming in the service sector, I think it will actually, in a funny way, be easier because uh, the typical like factory closer, say in Janesville, Wisconsin, they shut down the factory and there was all this misery in Janesville. That's not the way it's happening. This is coming to service jobs where the people are, many of them, in the cities already, where there are lots of other jobs. And also service sector workers tend to have a more flexible skill set. So they're actually easier to reemploy, but frequently they end up in more precarious jobs, more uncertain jobs. So could kind of end up in the gig economy. So I like to call that downgrade unemployment. They're not classically unemployed, but they're still not entirely happy about the way the they changes may have, have hit. They may have lost benefits and promised job security, even though it didn't turn out to be real job security. They may have lost some things in there. So this goes to a related issue, which is you, you I don't know if you coined this term or whether it already preexisted, but this idea of telemigration. Yeah, that, I coined that one. Okay, so tell us what telemigration is. So telemigration is a particular type of trade and services or offshoring, if you will. But it, the idea is that people work online in your office on the screen, helping you with copy editing or translating or sorting out your contacts or whatever it is, but they come online. And just to give you a very concrete example of this, in the world of web development, is absolutely mainstream. One of my friends in Switzerland organizes teams of people to do high-end websites very fast. So he'll get a programmer from the Ukraine online for three days, and he gets a user experience person in Canada online, and he gets a creative person from Uruguay. And they're online with his screens like this, working together as a team with these collaborative cloud-based softwares, and they knock out a great website really fast with never meeting together. Physically. Physically, yeah. 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 But the thing is, is the actual seeing and interacting, as we all know, is important to the teamwork. So this, this idea is, for example, last night I checked into the DuPont Circle Hotel, and there was three lovely people all to check me in. It could have been two on screens sitting in Guatemala, but speaking excellent English, and one real person, just in case. And that would have been a lot cheaper for them. And plus, if they'd had five or six, I wouldn't have had to wait in line. So it's that kind of idea that they come into our workspace through audiovisual telecommunication representation, which I think is a wave of the future. Yeah. And that seems, you know, for those who have been sort of thinking about, you know, tighter immigration policies and so forth to sort of prevent that kind of competition, I think what you're suggesting is a telemigration just kind of is a complete workaround around national policies that would try to restrict immigration. Yeah. The way I usually take that is that that's the good news, is that it is absolutely true that immigration is causing problems, political problems, all around the world. There's almost nowhere, you know, there's a few countries which are pretty empty and are very welcoming, of, but that almost always leads to some backlash, just because when people show up, they aren't like you, that disrupts communities, and people have a problem with that. So this is a way of filling skill gaps with less of that. Let's put mm -hmm. it that way. 
and maybe, you know, given the opportunity, people don't necessarily want to leave their home countries. Uh, that could also be possible. That's absolutely true. Yeah. So I'll give you a very concrete example. In Japan, everybody's trying to learn English or better English than they did before because that's they're being more open. And so there's a big demand for English language, you know, conversation, coaches and stuff like that. But it's very hard to get a visa to go there. So people are doing this telecommuting to give one-on-one conversation things over the line. And that makes everybody happy that you get the services for cheaper in Japan. The guy sitting in the Philippines doesn't have to pay Tokyo rents or, or, or worry about the visas. So really, it's, it's the gains from trade. There's nothing unusual about the gains doesn't from trade. They have to pack up and leave their family and their friends and their culture and everything. There's two sides to the discomfort of immigration, right? It's the discomfort experienced by people who give up their indigenous country of origin, also the country they're moving to. So Absolutely. it shouldn't be viewed as there are ways of looking at this that's a, a net gain for just about everybody, just about everybody. Mm-hmm. And that's a good segue, actually, to this sort of the second bucket of things I wanted to talk to you about, which is the study out of Finland looking at service offshoring and importation of service skills. Essentially, the study found that between 2002 and 2012, it was a 10-year period, there was a really significant importation or offshoring of service talent in the Finnish economy at roughly twice the magnitude of what the U.S. manufacturing sector experienced relative to China. So it's in terms of the scale relative to the Finnish economy, it's very, very significant. What the employment impacts seem to be partly confirms, I think, your thesis that there were a lot of people whose jobs went away in that process. However, this is what I kind of want you to think about and respond to is an important part of your thesis is that we could see loss of sort of high-end service jobs, service sector jobs. These aren't just people working in hotels. They might be radiologists. They might be attorneys. They might be people who really are kind of the backbone of of middle-class employment in the United States. Those jobs actually grew in the Finnish study. Those kinds of higher-level management and technical skill jobs grew in both the service sector and the manufacturing sector. But it was these low-skill and presumably lower-wage jobs that got hit hard. So tell me how you think your theory might line up with this this data coming out of the Finnish study. Right. So what I would point out is that this is not exactly the digital revolution period. 2002 to 2012, ICT was picking up and Remote people were becoming less remote. ICT is? Information and communication technology. But for example, video Skype didn't work very well in 2012. There was no FaceTime back then. So the digital technology that's now making remote people less remote, that was just really going there. It looked like a lot of it was things like virtual assistants and call centers and some of the back office accounting stuff. And there were some interesting things in there like security, private security personnel seemed to be, you know, I guess you just put it on camera and then you can have people watching from wherever to provide physical security. Yeah. So I I wonder if it wasn't a little bit the fact that the tech really wasn't quite there yet for the higher end jobs. But also I would just point out is I'm not making predictions what's going to happen. I can tell you stories of where it has happened at the high end for instance, in web development, anything to do with IT, artificial intelligence, lots of that's already outsourced. And also at the low end, all the call centers and 
back-end kind of accounting. That's been, been outsourced. I'm not disappointed that that didn't happen. No, nobody is. Yeah, so. but I, I think it fits in with yeah. the fact that at that level of technology, then basically you had to do things where it wasn't that important that you were actually there. So the interactivity was less important, which tend to be the lower end stuff. So I stumbled on this study on Twitter and watching a number of prominent libertarian free trader types who were really cheering the study. They were so happy to see this because what it pointed to was that all kinds of trade have these effects of expanding economies, expanding employment opportunities, the upper level management associated with a more dispersed customer base and workforce that the ICT permits is all seen as a plus. But one concern it left me with is that because these jobs are high end, at least in the study where we saw the growth was in these higher end management technical skill jobs, it almost looks to me like, you know, the winners keep winning and people with lower levels of education are continuing to experience a lot of pressure as a result of this, at least, again, as you said, we haven't seen the full effect, the full impact of this. We're only looking at a 10-year period, and that's almost 10 years ago. But I'm curious about your reaction to that. So globalization is always more opportunities for a nation's most competitive citizens, and it's always more competition for its least competitive citizens. So some of us are overpriced by international standards, and some of us are underpriced by international standards. We're underpriced because we can only sell locally, basically, in that way. So when you start opening up markets, you will get winners and losers, and you will tend to get the winners where you are the most competitive. That's, that's the way trade works. That's the way globalization works. So it doesn't surprise me that when Finland becomes more open, the talented people, which is what Finland really has, high-quality, talented people, won more than the ones who were more or less overpriced by international standards, but whose jobs were protected by the fact that they were basically non-traded. So that's one comment. The second comment is, is this isn't the way it always happens. So if you look at lawyers in London, for example, there's been a big problem even in the United States. Young lawyers are having trouble getting a start in because a lot of the low-end law work is done by robots now, by artificial intelligence, and some of it's offshore. So I was giving a, a talk on my book in London in July, and there was a CEO of a large London law firm, and he said 20% of their legal work is done by what he called high-skilled, low-wage countries like South Africa and Kenya, Nigeria, where they have a legal system that's close enough. And just remember, there are no legal or regulatory barriers for the vast majority of the law work. It's just the guy who signs the thing at the end has to be locally registered. But all the other stuff, that value chain can be disintegrated and offshore, and it's starting in law. So journalism is very clearly a big problem for journalists that they, they don't have the job opportunities. Law is the same way. Financial analysts writing reports, that's all been offshored to India. So lots of traders, for example, are, are largely being replaced by, by automation. So quite a number of high-end professions already are being undermined by, or at least they're facing competition from automation and globalization. The Finnish thing is about service trade. And I would like to say that the automation's going at the same time for the same jobs. That's something to keep in mind. We, we tend to focus on one or on the other, but mm -hmm. they're both coming yeah. together. I want to go back to one question I, I didn't get a chance to ask about sort of differences in policies. When you look at kind of model policies to support worker adjustment, not protect jobs, as you said, but to protect workers, what do you think of as the two or three things that 
governments can do to help ease the transition, because that's really what we're talking about. We can't bring jobs back. We're not going to protect industries that are or job categories that are going away or they're being transformed. We can't stop that process. And we don't want to stop that process because it might help a few people now, but it's hurting a lot of other people either now or later or both. So again, what are the two or three things that governments ought to be thinking about in terms of helping workers manage these transitions? I don't think it's rocket science. All you have to do is think about the last time you looked for a job and what support you wish you had. So Part of it is income support to look long enough for the job you want. A lot of times, people have to move to get a job. And frequently, in some countries like Denmark, there's support for relocation and Sweden the same. That's more difficult. Job search. Almost all governments, in Europe at least, have these sort of job search forums, websites, outreach. And then at a slightly higher level, a lot of times people have coaches. So if, if somebody gets fired at a, from a big name professional job, the company usually pays for three months or six months of a coach to help them find a new job and, you know, could be psychological readjustment or, or reorientation. And then retraining to have a system of lifelong learning where you can retrain to do things that are, are relevant. That's what I would say. Basically, think about the last time you looked for a job and what did you wish you could do? That's what, what the government's what, what countries when you... Think about who do a really good job at this. Who does a really good job? Well, basically, all of Northern Europe does. The Swiss model is very good, which is very different than others. But Denmark is probably considered the best. They call it the flexi security system, where it's complete hire fire. There's no restrictions on firing people, no taxes, no you know severance pay. But then the government makes a guarantee that we will find you another job and we will do whatever is necessary to do that. It's quite extreme and, you know, it's a small country and highly educated already, so that's maybe not affordable. But almost every single country in Europe has the income support, the retraining support, the job search support. That's like quite systematic. All right. Shifting now to what I found really resonated with me because I spend so much of my time thinking about the interface between human beings and technology. Uh. This is obviously you know, really important in half of the equation that we've got going on here, which is the automation part of it, as well as the telemigration. So you seem to be making the argument that people shouldn't try to compete with machines and should instead focus on what's called soft skills. I call them intrinsic skills, communication, teamwork, and creativity. Is that what you're saying? Is that the path forward for both current and future workers? Absolutely. So the way I like to think about it, when you think about the future of work, don't think about what the jobs will be. Use a process of elimination. As I like to say it, we will do what the AI and the telemigrants can't do because they're so much cheaper than us. If an artificial, if like a robotic process automation or a virtual assistant can do what we do, it will. It won't be jobs as a whole, it'll be certain tasks. So don't do what they do. And the way to think about that, I think, structurally is right now, machine learning is what's driving all this stuff, at least in the next few years. That's the way it works. To do that, you need to gather a big data set, a structured data set, where the question is clear and the outcome is clear. And many of the things in your job, if you look at your to-do list, those are things where you could get a structured data set if you had enough resources. But lots of the stuff in your job, you could never do that. For instance, preparing for this podcast. There's no way you could write down a big 
million data points of this is what I did and this was right. good or bad. How do I ask this question? Yeah, it's, yeah. it's just too human. Yeah. So we will be doing those things because the software robots will be doing all the rest. And on the other side, this what I like to call remote intelligence or telemigrants or service outsourcing or whatever you want to call it. Basically, the only thing they can't do, since they're real humans and there's a lot of talented people in the world, is be in the same room. So basically, I think the future of work will be dominated by jobs, which involve lots of the most human skills and people being in the same room at the same time with people or machines. And everything else, or at least those tasks, will be automated or outsourced. Right. So look for a job where you've got to be in a room with another person or other people in order to do that job. So the real big winners are the ones who use AI and remote intelligence as tools and know how to manage it. And that will require a real human, and that will involve the human skills like ethics, empathy, motivation, curiosity, innovation, dealing with unknown situations, educating groups of people at a time. These are things that computers can't do yet. And at least when what I read out of the technology, say like McKinsey Global Institute reports, most of the, the scientists don't think they're going to be able to do that for the foreseeable future, which right. is 10 years or so. Yeah, there's sort of two camps. It's either either already almost here or a bunch of people saying this isn't happening nearly as fast as we thought it was going to. And one book that I just finished reading called Rebooting AI, I think is the title of it. But the authors there really argued that we may never get there using the approaches that we're using right now. Because building these huge data sets, I mean, the world's a big place. How many big data sets are you going to need in order to adequately inform all of the technology that you might be able to use? So, Let me uh, jump in there because yeah. it's one of the favorite parts of my book that most people ignore. And that is I, I drilled down really hard to figure out why the AI can't do human. Just to figure out that it was because there is this some people say it's some doesn't. And just sort of parenthetically, the people who say that it can look very carefully whether they actually are doing AI or they just study AI. My experience, having talked to lots of people and lots of tech guys, the closer you get to the people actually doing the AI, they go like, whoa, we're nowhere close to a self-drive car let loose in a random city. We're a long ways away from that. And in the book, I read about theories as to why this is. So one of them is that our superpower evolutionarily is social intelligence. And social intelligence is based on some brain structures that's nothing like machine learning now. They call them mirror neurons right. and model of the minds. And there's a whole psychologist study the social interactions. And all these, the micro expressions that you talk about in your book, which hundreds of times a second, we're interacting through subtle shifts in our facial expressions that feed a whole social dynamic that we're not. That's why I like calling them implicit skills, because mm. they happen so fast, we don't know that they're there. Right. So let, let me rift on that implicit yeah. skill thing. I like very much. So in a book, I write about the sort of lizard brain and the brain that evolved more recently, the cortex part. Speech is actually fairly new to humanoids, yet we were socially coordinating for millions of years without speech. So nonverbal communication was super important. And it is so deeply embedded in us is if you go to the zoo and look at the chimps, you can kind of understand what they're saying to each other <laughs> because it's so deeply embedded in, right. in what, the way we go. Or for example, children are born blind, smile. There's a number of things deep in our brain that we communicate in, in ways, and that's not going to be picked up by these machine learning. The other one is just the, that the way our brain actually works is not digital. 
you have many neurons coming in and this frequency of firing. And, and so it's more like a committee decision instead of like running through a logical code. So I've read some AI guys say we have to completely change the way we program computers to come anywhere close to the social intelligence we have. Right. No, that's exactly what the the rebooting AI authors were saying is that we're just not going to get there through kind of formal logical structures. There's got to be a revolution in the way that we think about developing AI. Okay. So this is a very good segue into the kind of the last thing I wanted to talk to you about. And I want to quote back a line from your book where you say, our success and happiness requires a pursuit of collective interests, but evolution tends to reward self-minded individuals who free ride on the community. Isn't there an argument that says that that view that I just articulated, it's kind of stands reality on its head, that in fact, human beings are mainly social creatures who, in Adam Smith's phrase, desire to be loved and to be lovely, to be seen as being worthy of love in the eyes of others and in their own eyes, in the eyes of their impartial spectator that Smith talked about. This tends to mute self-interest in favor of cooperation. Don't you think so? I mean, and it doesn't that sort of both reinforces your, your main argument that these social and human skills are the key to success, as well as cut against your argument that we're basically self-interested. So I just wanted to hear you grapple with that a little sure. bit. Sure. That comes from my discussion of what's sometimes called the social paradox, which is that humans bestride the earth because we can cooperate in large groups. And yet evolutionarily, there's always an incentive to be a free rider, biologically or in terms of not washing your dishes or whatever. Let me interrupt yeah. you there yeah. because free riders typically end up being kicked out of the community at some point. I mean, you can only get away with it for so long. Right. Well, so the social paradox is solved in two main ways. So there's some societies where there's community values. And so like I live in Switzerland now. And, you know, if you don't make your bed on Sunday and somebody walks by your window and sees, they get upset about that. If you wash your car on Sunday, they may, you know, report you to the police. It's that the community values are enforcing certain rules all the time. If you park in the wrong place, somebody else may knock on your door and say, no, I'm sorry, sir, you can't park there very politely. But that's the communitarian one. The other one is rules-based, where people have these rules and you have to obey the rules. So what you just said was that if you don't wash your dishes long enough, you get kicked out of the community. So that's, you know, that's the consequences of it. But what I wanted to talk about with the social paradox is, is that it requires some sort of adjustment to this whole thing. It will either be like in Japan, where everybody believes they're part of the community and they're going to share the pains and the gains no matter what, they, they trust it. Or there are rules, like in Denmark, which says the government will help me if I lose my job. That's where I would go with it. Let's put it this way. Inside a family, it's already hard to solve the social paradox, where everybody loves each other and have known each other and depend upon each other. Once you start leaving the family, it gets more and more difficult to rely on this kind of social pressures. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much, Richard. It's been a wonderful conversation. And speaking to the audience. Go buy this book. It's fantastic. It'll change the way you think about work and the future. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be here.